10,000 Reasons, 10,000 Years. Sounds like it's kind of slow. One reason per year? Hmm. I would like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 23. Proverbs 23. Also, I would like to say a very big word of thank you for the card, for the many gracious comments on the card, the water bottle for the frog that gets in my throat once in a while, and for the little enabling to visit my favorite coffee shop. If I didn't have an audience, I might have been a little bit emotional, but I fortunately had an audience, so I restrained that. But thank you very much for the box that was put in front of my study door yesterday. Proverbs 23, verse 26. My son, give me thine heart, and let thine eyes observe my ways. That's not just a suggestion. That's instruction. My son, my daughter, give me thine heart your affections, and let your eyes observe, your intellect observe my ways. Let's take a moment and ask God to guide us in these moments. Our Father, we pause to thank you for giving us your word and for preserving it down through all of these many years, these centuries of time, and for giving us the freedom and privilege to own it, to study it, to seek to understand it, to apply it, and to make it known to others. Help us to be faithful to your truth. And may that be evidenced in our lives and in all the details of our lives. For we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like you to think for a moment of all the sermons that you have heard in the past year, including all the chapels, Sunday services, your home church, all the meetings that you have attended. How many have you attended? Many. But what can you tell me about what you remember from all of those many, many meetings, prayer meetings, worship services, ministry time, chapels? If you could take one thought from every message that you hear in the course of a year, you would have a lot of thoughts. Sometimes I think it's maybe that I'm guilty, at least, of trying to put too many thoughts in one message. What I'd like to speak to you about this morning is making decisions, not ten little foolproof methods of making right decisions every time. But I want to stress the importance of making decisions, We can slide through life and refuse to make decisions. The fact is we need to make them. God calls us to decisions. It is our obligation to make decisions and, of course, to make them scripturally. But we want to to force and emphasize the point of making decisions and doing decisions that are pleasing and beneficial in light of both time and eternity. First thing I'd like you to notice is that God calls us to make decisions. In that little verse that we read in Proverbs 23, God with kindness, with compassion, 
is saying, My son, my daughter, give me thine heart. He's asking us to do something. He's requiring obedience. And if I had a title, which I do, the title would be that big doors of opportunity swing on small hinges of obedience. Small hinges of obedience. But notice that God calls us to decision-making. Our life will be the total of our decisions. Good decisions, bad ones. Spiritual, unspiritual. Selfish, selfless. Right and wrong, and so on. Our lives will be the total of our decisions, for good or for bad. Just go back with me for a moment to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 30, and verse 19. And here is yet another example of God calling man to decision. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 19 we read, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life, that both thou and thy seed may live. God calls us to make decisions. The same thing is observable. Just go over a little bit to Joshua chapter 24. And there Joshua, in essence, does the very same thing. In the last part of the verse, it says, But as for me and my house, we will, we determine, we plan, we purpose to serve the Lord. So the fact of Joshua's decision to serve the Lord was the product of a choice. He was to do that. And of course, God has given us that as an example. The Old Testament is full of people who were called to making decisions. If we had lots of time, we could look at Ruth. Ruth was a Moabitess. God says of the Moabites that Moab is my wash pot. If somebody calls you a wash pot, don't thank them. That's not a compliment. And yet out of that wash pot nation came Ruth. That's interesting. Think of all the disadvantages she had in life. First of all, she was a Moabitess. She was a widow. Her father-in-law was dead. Her brother-in-law was dead. Her mother-in-law was saying, stay home. Go home. Go back to your parents. Go back to your culture, your, your religion. But Ruth said no. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And the Bible tells us that Ruth clave. She was glued to her mother-in-law and went back to Israel and became a part of the lineage of the Messiah himself. She made a wise decision. She was brought to that point, will I go to Israel or will I go back to Moab? But she made a decision that was a right decision. Was it easy? Was there ever any pain in that decision? I'm sure there was. Did she miss her culture, her language, her, her background, her parents? I'm sure she did. Looking at her character as presented on Scripture, but she chose the God of heaven. She chose wisely and rightly. 
Well, there are many other examples, but time won't allow us to look at all of them. We could think of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, a man who was not saved, praying. God heard his prayer. God moved in Peter's life, gave him that vision of the unclean animals and telling him, arise, kill and eat. And the message was, you go and minister to the Gentiles, to Cornelius. And Peter arose and was obedient. And to think of Cornelius and those with him and perhaps many others being saved as a result of Peter's obedience. A little door, a big door rather, on a small hinge resulted in Cornelius and perhaps many others coming to trust Jesus as Savior. I would like you to turn in your Bible with me to 1 Samuel chapter 15. Well, we can start in chapter 13 to begin with. Chapter 13, well, we won't take the time to read all of this, but it really takes in the, the 23 verses here. In this chapter, Saul has become king, and he's facing his great enemy, the Philistines. And he's looking at all of the massive enemy, their chariots, their spears, their armor. And Samuel hasn't showed up. He was supposed to come, but he didn't show up on the appointed time. There was a test now for Saul. He looked at his own numbers, and they weren't very impressive, and they were beginning to melt away as desertion took place in the ranks of the army of Israel. And so he took matters into his own hands, and he made a decision. I'm going to be the one who makes the sacrifice. Notice what God has recorded here in verse 13. And Samuel said to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. Here's a big door of opportunity. I am willing, I want to establish your kingdom on Israel forever. But you let that door swing shut on the ground of disobedience. Think of the consequences to Saul and his sons and the nation. Did God sit in heaven and wring his hands and say, Oh my, what am I going to do now? Saul has messed up. God knew what to do, and he was well aware of that from the beginning. But Saul messed up on the ground of disobedience. It wasn't that he didn't know, but he wasn't willing to obey. And I would make this statement, that as we make decisions, don't lean on your own understanding. Take God's understanding. God knows more than we do, and he's always right. We will never be right if we choose to disobey what God has said. So the door of opportunity swung shut on the hinge of disobedience. What a difference it might have been had Saul chosen to obey, but he refused. We might say this, that Saul's reasoning was fleshly. 
what am I going to do? Just a minute, who's running this show? Isn't it God who's in heaven? But he became too big for his own boots. We know later on in this account of Saul's life here in 1 Samuel that when he was little in his own esteem, God made him king. And then he began to strut around feeling self-importance. And he messed up because of that. I also have noticed that Saul's repentance was fickle. If his reasoning was fleshly, his repentance was fickle. Did he really repent? We don't find that in chapter 13. Just go over to chapter 15. And here, reading at verse 25, it says, now this is a different event in Saul's life. He had been battling the Philistines in chapter 13. Now here, he had been given orders to go and wipe out the Amalekites. And he claimed that he did it, but he didn't. How self-deceptive is that? He kept their king, Agag. He allowed the people to take the spoils, which there was to be none. In verse 25, it says, Now therefore I pray thee, pardon my sin and turn again with me that I may worship the Lord. Now doesn't that sound super sanctimonious? Really pious. Pardon me so I can go and worship. And Samuel said unto Saul, I will not return with thee, for thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord hath rejected thee from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned about to go away, Saul, he, laid hold upon the skirt of his mantle and tore it. Samuel started to walk away, so Saul grabbed that mantle and ripped it from him. And Samuel said unto him, The Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day, and hath given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. Saul was given the command which he understood to go and wipe out the Amalekites, and he didn't do it as God commanded. Later on on Mount Gilboa, who was it that took Saul's life? It was an Amalekite. Those little acts of disobedience on our part will certainly come back to haunt us and to destroy us. Saul lost the kingdom because of disobedience. But now let's think positively for a moment. Think of Esther. In that little book of ten chapters, Esther gives us a model of obedience. I'd like you to think with me along that line. We can't take the time to turn to all of that just now. But Esther was a young lady. Her real name was Hadassah. A young lady brought up by her cousin, Mordecai. Because she was a beautiful young lady, she eventually became the queen. I'm shortening all things up quite a bit here. She became the queen we know the story of wicked Haman and his plot to destroy the Jews because he didn't like Mordecai, because Mordecai was faithful and obedient to God's truth, at least in part. 
And so Haman decided he'd wipe out all the Jews, perhaps energized by the devil, to destroy the line of the Messiah. And this came to Esther's attention. And Mordecai's event, his counsel in light of this event, was, Esther, you need to go and see the king, whom she hadn't seen for 30 days. He was in board meetings, boring, I mean board meetings. In any case, she hadn't seen her husband for 30 days. And she knew that if it was her task to go into the king's presence and interrupt his meeting, and if for some reason he did not extend that scepter, she would be killed on the spot. And she knew that. And Mordecai knew that. And he said to her, Esther, maybe you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this, for the benefit of thousands of people. Chapter 4 and verse 14. And Esther's comment was, okay, I'll go. And if I perish, I perish. I can only die once. And if it be now, or if it be at the hands of Haman and his plot to destroy the Jews, then so be it. And what I see in Esther is she had a great opportunity to spare the lives of thousands and thousands of Jewish people, a great door of opportunity, and on the hinge of obedience, she walked through the door. And as a result, thousands of people were spared a very miserable death at the hands of people who were profiteering or wanting to profiteer from the possessions of the Jewish people. And what I see in this is seek godly counsel. If we look at the book of Esther from a typical point of view, from an illustrative point of view, Mordecai represents the Holy Spirit. Here, Esther took godly counsel and acted on it obediently. And just think of the consequences. Here is a book that draws our attention to the providence of God and his gracious dealings with mankind, disobedient mankind. And here we find Esther as a bright light, as a godly young woman who obeyed godly instruction. We might also consider what we find in Luke chapter 13. And let's just turn to that quickly. Luke chapter 13, verse 34. So we've looked at one man and his disobedience. We've looked at one woman and her obedience. Now we're looking at a people, at a city, a nation. And here Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I, it was his will to do this, would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth her brood under her wings, and ye would not. It doesn't say you could not but it does say you chose not to. And here Jesus looking at Jerusalem, knowing what was about to happen in 70 AD, knowing the centuries of ruin, knowing the struggles that go on there today, 
knowing the struggles that will go on during the, the great tribulation, the seven years of the wrath of God. And he says, I would like to be like a mother hen and put my wings around you and spare you. But you wouldn't. How significant is that? Here is the mind of God expressed towards Jerusalem. And as a people were called to a decision, and they messed up. Just think for a moment of what Israel had done to their own prophets. Secular history tells us they took Isaiah and put him in a hollow log and then sawed the log in two. It's kind of rough treatment. Think of what they did to so many of those that were sent to them to be of blessing and encouragement. Just a little verse comes to mind in Jeremiah 22. And there in Jeremiah 22, we read this. In verse 29, O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. How many people do we read of Jeremiah leading to the Lord? None. Years, decades, about 40 years of ministry. Was he a failure? No. It was God breathing through him as this book, 1,364 verses, was given to us. And he says, Oh, earth! And he uses a figure of speech called an iteration, always heralding something very significant. Hear the word of the Lord. Did the earth respond? No. Did Israel respond? Just go over to Ezekiel chapter 33. In Ezekiel 33, we find the same thought developed in a slightly different way. It says in verse 11, Say unto them, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live, turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? Perhaps Jesus had these verses in mind when he made that profound statement in Luke thirteen thirty four. You might consider with me also just going over to the book of Acts, chapter 26. So if we would draw an observation from Jerusalem's refusal to hear and respond, we would say this, take the word of God seriously and not allow it to slip through our fingers, but take it seriously. In Acts 26 and verse 28, we find the Apostle Paul, with all of his years and experience near the end of his earthly journey, In verse 28, well, we'll go back a little bit. Start reading with me in verse 23. That Christ should suffer and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead with relation to the church and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. And as he thus spake for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself, much learning doth make thee mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. For the king knoweth of these things, 
before whom also I speak freely, for I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him, for this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And Paul's response, I would to God that thou not only, but also all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am, except these bonds. In other words, I wish you were all saved. Think for a moment of King Agrippa standing before no one less than the Apostle Paul, having already earlier poured over the Old Testament scriptures, knowing in his head the facts, believing that the facts were true, he had a great opportunity to be saved. And as far as we know from the record of Scripture, the door swung shut on disobedience, not coming, not trusting, not believing in his heart. Agrippa knew the truth. We saw that in verse 27. He understood the truth. He was almost persuaded. But to be almost persuaded is, in fact, to be eternally lost. What a tragedy. A great open door of salvation. And as far as we know from the record of Scripture, it swung shut, shut on the door of disobedience, not coming, not trusting, not believing with his heart. As we make decisions in life, we do well to realize the importance of every decision, and that's what I've tried to stress this morning, of a man, Saul, of a woman, Esther, of a people, Jerusalem, and then of a person of prominence, King Agrippa, almost persuaded, but lost.